Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on the Fearless Paranoia podcast. I am Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I am Ryan, and I'm a cybersecurity architect. And we are here to help decrypt the complex world of cybersecurity. And today we have a topic that is close to our co-host's here, technological heart. He uh, He's a very big, I don't even know if advocate is the right word to use, but this is a, a very big deal for him. We're here to talk about zero trust. There's a lot of talk in the cybersecurity news, in tech news, in really all IT discussions about zero trust. And I feel like it is not a term that when it's discussed, is discussed with, at least in the business world, much actual attention to what the term itself really means. So Ryan, what does zero trust mean? So zero trust is a really interesting concept. And uh, like you said, you're probably going to hear different speeches based on what zero trust is. And one of the biggest reasons I think this message gets messed up a lot lately is because there's a lot of people also trying to sell zero trust. And I think so that you're getting a lot of marketing messages that, uh, that are getting in the way of what zero trust is. To me, zero trust is a very simple concept. And it starts from the concept of understanding what trust is in the IT world and in the technology world and how that was kind of used in the past versus how we need to break away from that now. In the past, before the internet was so easy to traverse and there was so much bandwidth and so many services offered and things, it was it was easier to just set up your little walled palace. You would set up your perimeter, you put your systems behind your perimeter, and then you effectively just open the walls. So you end up being in a, a one-room house on almost every house that was on the internet back in those days. Everybody existed in that same palace. You all existed with the same level of trust, the same level of access, the same level of whatever. Outside that perimeter, you really didn't trust anybody else. But once they made it through the gate, they were effectively treated as like citizen of the kingdom at that point. Is it kind of a version of assuming that everyone is who they say they are? It's kind of like saying if you have a wristband, you can be in the party. So all you need to do is get a wristband and then you get access to everything once you're on the inside. Obviously, you can see what the trouble with that is, is nowadays it's become much easier to get a wristband to get inside somebody's party. Yeah, if no one's asking how you got that wristband or where it came from. Well, and sometimes even if they are, it's gotten to be more easy to get a hold of that. And so back in the day where even around Active Directory and a lot of those kind of business level systems, there was a significant level of trust involved in all of the transactions that were done. You would authenticate once. Sometimes they were access control lists doing broad level of access control to different secure resources. Outside of that, everybody was effectively trusted to just kind of have access broadly to a wide range of services without any sort of secondary authentication or auditing or anything beyond that initial point of access. So what you're saying is then that one, uh, I think, common example of at least identifying what it, what trust means in this context would be anytime you click remember me on this computer, that's a version of trust. Now, the level of getting there obviously varies. Or if you save something in your browser, it's a level of trust. If you save a password in your browser, then any site that you go to trusts that whomever is accessing that site through your computer or through your browser is you. Well, and that's kind of you assuming that you are going to be the only one that ever has access to those resources. So, I mean, it's the same thing as like leaving your computer unlocked at home. If you're okay with whoever's inside your house having access to your computer, that works just fine. In a true zero trust environment, you'd have a lock on your front door. I'd have a lock on the door to my office. My computer would be locked here. My individual applications would have different levels of authentication. You build up those layers of security. You don't trust anybody at any point anymore and you require them to, you know, 
go through the zero trust process without banging too many keywords right now because we'll get into that in a moment. So it sounds to me a lot like that the metaphor is what makes the concept of zero trust seem hostile because in real life, you might have a lock on your office door if you have things in your office that people who are regularly in your, in your house shouldn't get. But the bottom line is you're not going to ask your wife to verify her identity every time she comes in the door of the house. It's just not something that in interpersonal communications in the real world, that is something that that happens. If you don't know somebody, you might ask for their ID, things like that. But once you have become accustomed to someone, you assume that it's not someone doing the men in black wearing someone else's skin as a suit. There's a, a level of trust there. And I can certainly see why this idea of zero trust, when a, that metaphor gets applied, starts creating the impression that it's all hostile, that I'm not going to trust you. And it's because I don't trust you as a person. But that's not what we're talking about at all, is it? That's not what it should be viewed as. That's really not what we're getting to, because this isn't this isn't a social thing. This is a, a technical thing. To employ zero trust in your social life is, is a whole different aspect. Um, <laughs> if that's if that's something you want to do, uh, I, w- I wish you the best of luck uh, on that. But it's not. It's, it's an interesting social experiment. Th- this yeah. is this is more meant for for systems and access because while it's really nice and great and it's a warm feeling to be able to say, hey, I trust everybody. So like, if you're in my office building, I'm gonna leave these file cabinets unlocked because I trust you guys. But then again, I can see all of you. I can probably usually physically watch access. So there's some level of distrust or lack of trust or at least oversight of that trust that. You usually is involved in most of those equations to, to some level. Or earned trust. Or earned trust, sure. You build up a relationship over time, but again, you can identify that person. In the real world, there's, there are very few ways for someone to impersonate someone else so effectively that in those one-on-one face-to-face exchanges that you have a reason not to trust that the person standing in front of you isn't who they say they are. Correct. We have not figured out deep faking reality yet, so we're not quite there. <laughs> but uh, at some point, we're going to even have to start putting zero trust into things like some of our video communications because of things like deep fake in the future. But really, at, yeah, at its core, we can't with systems and access to data and especially remote access to systems nowadays really rely anymore on the concept of trust because because it needs to at its basic core to be trust but verify. Uh, and that's kind of like the initial steps into zero trust, right? Like you want to make sure that, yes, I want to trust this person, but I'm not going to. Instead, please tell me who you are and then validate that you are who you say you are because you can just say you are anybody. We want to make sure that we go through and, you know, properly deal with things like the authentication, like strong authentication into resources is probably one of the biggest cores of zero trust is you need to make sure that you have access to to all of your systems delegated to only who should have access, then you need to make sure that you validate that those people who should have access are who they say they are before you provide them access. And then after you provide them access, you should have a way to account for that so that you can go back and have audit trail that that access was granted. And once you meet those three major things, you've kind of gotten through the, the major core of what you need to provide a good zero trust environment at the very basic level. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. 
you just kind of described what I was going to ask you about, which is how zero trust works in practice. So now it sounds to me like it's actually a combination of what, at least in my business of advising companies on policies and procedures for cybersecurity, involves the intersection of several different policies. First, you need to have your data governance and confidential data identification policies in effect so that you know what data you have, where it's located, what needs specific protection, and have those protections set up. And then number two, you have your data authorization policies and your access and your acceptable use and everything like that that would determine who gets access to the specific data and what data they need. And then three is to have your security monitoring and your password and your your multi-factor authentication systems in place. It's like in the real world, a GPS monitor on the person once they identify who they are and you've confirmed that they are who they say they are, at least to the extent you can, now you need to know where they go and what they do. And then I guess as a a follow-on to that would be determining how frequently that second step is going to be performed. How often do you make them confirm that they are who they say they are and so forth? And then what do you do with that third step? That audit information is another part of that as well. But that it seems to me like it's the the intersection of those policies is how you effectively implement zero trust. Yep. Do I make that right? No, you hit it absolutely right on the money. The really, really simplified approach is very strong authentication, strong passwords or passwordless, multi-factor, going down those type of routes, least privilege. So classifying your data, making sure you understand what it is, delegate only who should have access to it and set that up in a controlled system so you can do that per user, per group, or however you're going to do that, per role, and then make making sure that you audit all of the accesses to those data to make sure not only A, did it stay within the least privileged model and the classification that you had designated, but you understand all of the type of access that was made to what was done so you can understand trends and look for any other types of anomalies that you would normally expect as well. You know, if you get one user accessing data and every single day the most that they do is update, you know, a single spreadsheet and then all of a sudden one day you see a user upload 85 gigs worth of data to some uh, online sharing platform. Those are the kind of trends that you need to understand as well. And that's also part of the end of that zero trust process. So you have to really yeah, validate your people, validate your access, and then validate all the actions in the end and make sure that you log it and are actually looking at that and reviewing it and understanding what's going on because the knowledge is the key to really implementing zero trust properly. You have to make sure you understand all the different points that compromise or anomalies could arise from and make sure that you've got visibility over all of those. So it sounds to me like the first steps, the understanding your data and the authorization process, those are largely going to be policy driven. It's going to be what you decide to implement. I don't know of too many systems where it would be not just prohibitively expensive, but expensive at all to effectively implement what you need to implement. Your password policy, are you willing to require your employees to have 16 to 20 digit passwords for everything? Are you willing to shell out the money to buy a physical token for people to use? That's going to be about, you know, but it's, you're not talking about significant expenditures. It's the third step that essentially the monitoring of the access, which is what occurs to me could be really resource intensive. What kind of things should small and medium-sized businesses be doing to make sure they're adequately performing that third task while getting effective value without overspending on their cybersecurity? How can small and medium-sized businesses know they're doing what they need to do without breaking the bank? Yeah, I really don't think that, and I'm going to probably unfortunately upset a few people by saying this, but really you don't need to spend a ton of money to make zero trust work. But you'll see as you progress through those three major steps that we kind of identified that the potential for cost gets a little bit higher as you go into those steps. Again, implementing 
running stuff like MFA and things, strong encryption, good password policies, relatively low cost, relatively easy to do. And most places have already started to really implement that. Well, yeah, most of the tech tools that I think small businesses use nowadays, I have almost all of those options available yeah. for free anyways. You don't need to spend money to, to do that. It comes down, yeah, to availability of the option, which is pretty broad. And then it comes down to your willingness to actually go through implementing it. Some people just don't want to deal with MFA because they don't want an app on their phone or they don't want to go through the extra time or they don't want to deal with what it, it, it does add one extra layer of complexity, which is an unfortunate byproduct of the world today. We face a lot of threats that require at least those basic levels of security. But it's just the same as locking your door at night, having to go through and make sure your door is locked because, you know, somebody might come up and just check your handle in the middle of the night and, you know, to make sure that your important things are publicly available. Getting into the second level, classifying the data and really putting those controls in place. A lot of that's very procedural driven and very policy driven also. And a lot of that can be implemented pretty easily. It comes down to taking the time and having the diligence to actually stay on top of that once you get it done because data classification is not fun. It does require extra administration. But if you have that done, it really enables you a lot to understand what's really important about your business and being able to avoid or recover from those type of instances when they come up. But dealing with the third one, that auditing ability is really where most places probably fail to meet that final kind of step of zero trust. Because when you look at it topically, it's not as required to have that piece as long as you, you know, a lot of places think, well, I've got MFA now and we've got people using strong passwords and we have a risk policy in place and we use encryption and we've got confidential labels and stuff on our data. We should be fine, right? Except that there will always be something that will pop up. There will always be an anomaly somewhere. There will always be that one zero day problem you're unaware of. There's going to be that one bad actor inside your company that's like an insider threat. There's always going to be something. And so you need to be diligent about watching all of those kind of transactions as well. And that's where having that kind of like coordinated SIM, whether it's a, a managed service or whether at its very basic core, you get some sort of tool that can do like file integrity monitoring that at least watches that type of access and can report back to a business owner so that they can look for those kind of at least major trends. I'd say at a very, very minimum base, if you can't go back and look for those type of things because it's going to be too complex for you, you then have to really at least polish up hard on the first two steps and make sure that you really reduce access down to only the people that need it because you either need to cut the access or monitor the access. Those are the only two real ways to be safe and truly secure in today's environment. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. I can't get past the notion that zero trust is poorly communicated in the business world by people who want to get your attention to talk about zero trust and not even necessarily in a nefarious way. The real talk about zero trust is actually just a better security system. It's taking what your security should employ and taking it to the next level because the bottom line is the ability to impersonate an authorized user is unfortunately getting easier and easier and our security needs to increase itself to match. Well, and to do so anonymously and from anywhere 
anywhere in the world is the other big key too because it's one thing to protect your house uh, we talk about locking your door but that also assumes that your threats are standing on your doorstep uh, in the case of an internet connected world your threat could be halfway around the world in a non-extradition country basically having just shy of immunity in uh, their ability to harass you remotely and that's that's a dangerous adversary to be facing because very little to lose on their side a heavy amount to gain and it's the exact opposite for us on this side defending you've got a, potentially a lot to lose your business your proprietary data uh, intellectual property pii you start running into some of those other types of issues of things that you could lose and if you you know there's obviously there's there's no gain in that battle except winning against being compromised which is is best case scenario holding the line really yeah and that's really what it comes down to so you need to do those things because if you don't you will fall behind and you will be compromised and you'll have to face those other challenges and in the end those will end up taking more of your time they will have a more detrimental impact on your business and they'll probably be more costly than just implementing some policies that might seem a little bit tough at first but really just become second nature once you get them implemented and you get in the strides of uh of working with those technologies well and there's really no understating how important it is when your authentication systems are, in a lot of cases now, not dealing with authenticating a workstation within your physical premises, but actually authenticating someone accessing remotely, the remote work, I guess, world that began with COVID and has held much longer than really any other aspect of our dealing with that pandemic. It is a new world out there for companies dealing with authenticating their employees and making sure that only the right people have access to information. So zero trust is an incredibly important concept and your company should be applying it to the fullest extent that is possible. So, I mean, zero trust itself is probably best looked at as a goal. If you uh, have any recollection of concepts of calculus, it's it's approaching a limit. Are you ever going to fully get there? Well, probably not because you're not going to authenticate a user every second they're on your system. But the closer you get, the more secure your system will be. I want to thank you all for joining us here on the Fearless Paranoia podcast today. You can find a whole lot of other information on this topic at our website, uh, www.fearlessparanoia.com. We will also include some links to help resources, including some various systems that you can use to try to implement that third step of zero trust security. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcast subscription channels. You can also get additional information on more cybersecurity topics at resiliencecybersecurity.com. I am Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. 